Psalms are one of the more uh, easier books to find when you're flipping through, right? Um, chances are, you turn to the middle, you'll find one psalm and get to where you need to be. We're in the middle of this summer sermon series, and I know from hearing from some of you that we were just getting some momentum in the spring in our Ephesian series. And here we go and take a break from the Ephesian series. But the reality of many of your schedules, the reality of my schedule and my family's schedule is July and August brings a lot of coming and going. And uh, so we chose to uh, shift to a series, Steve, Sage, and I, uh, that doesn't, isn't impacted as much from those comings and goings. If you miss a Sunday or two and you come back, it's, it, you, you won't wonder where we are in the middle of a letter that requires a little bit of a context. And so um, here we are. You know, it's been said that while most of Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. So very often, the Psalms represent with the author's emotions the stark realities of life and examine those stark realities through eyes of faith. Psalms give us a vocabulary for singing a duet with God. That's our subtitle of this series. We hear from Him. We speak back to Him. He assures us we respond with heart and mind and often words. Today's psalm starts with praise and it ends with a warning. Psalm 95, listen carefully. These are God's words. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if only you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Speak freshly, Lord, through this song that your people from of old have sung, have memorized, have shared with one another. Speak freshly through your Holy Spirit. Speak through the New Testament that interacts with this psalm. Speak today, for you have not changed. And stir our hearts to respond with worship and obedience and delight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start with a question. Why are we here? And I literally mean here on Sunday morning. The psalm starts in the first couple of verses with what we would label a call to worship. It's an invitation. Come, let us. That's the language. It's an invitation for the people of God to come and praise Him. And the question we could ask is, how do we do that? There are various ways we could do that. You can approach God in silence, in prayerful meditation. 
You can approach Him in grief, with tears, in mourning. You can come before Him, verse 2, in repentance over your sin, broken by how you have acted, how you have thought, how you have spoken, contrary to His will. All those ways are appropriate, but verses 1 and 2 describe what I would call the most typical way God's people come before Him, which is with thanksgiving, extolling Him with music and song. How do we praise typically? We make a joyful noise before the Lord. My pastor's heart won't let me assume that we're all okay with that and we're all on the same page about making a joyful noise before the Lord. So let me ask this question. If a friend tomorrow morning asks you, what did you do this weekend? What did you do on Sunday? The typical answer is along the lines of, well, we went to church in the morning as usual. And I recognize that in some of your circles, social circles, work circles, even that answer is already countercultural. The fact that you would take time away from sleep or yard or chores or family to wake up on a Sunday morning and give your attention and your service to an unseen God, it's, that's countercultural even to, to tell somebody uh, among the things you could relate about your weekend that I went to church as usual on Sunday morning. But I want to press farther. I want us to go deeper and, and, and I ask this question, does that answer, I went to church on Sunday morning, as good as it is, does it do justice to the core reason why we've gathered here in this place, why we do it every Sunday? I went to church doesn't communicate much more than I showed up somewhere. I also went to 7-Eleven before I went to the park, before I went to my cousin's house for dinner. So often our words indicate what we think and how we behave. Our, our words reveal our priorities, for better or for worse. Here's what I'll suggest as a richer answer to the question, what did you do on Sunday? I gathered for worship with my church family. I know that sounds a little formal, might sound awkward. Maybe you can't imagine telling your coworker that. I gathered for worship with my church family, but doesn't that get closer to the reason we are here? And maybe your words can actually work backwards in helping to reshape your heart and your mind. What you say, and then you consider whether your actions and your behaviors are aligned with what you just said. Maybe they can um, refine and mature what we do when we come to church on Sunday mornings. Our director of worship arts, Carl Stevens, he and I regularly spend time talking about how we can lead and encourage God's people in worship. We assess, we come up with ideas, we um, brainstorm. Carl, as the director of worship, spends time picking the best key to match the wide range of voices in uh, the congregation, not for professionals, for normal people like you and like me. Carl coaches his song leaders to facilitate our singing. He aims for a mix of familiar and new songs so that we're introduced to uh, new ideas from Scripture, but at the same time, there's a familiarity to what we're singing so we can sing with gusto, all so that we as God's people might come before Him and extol Him. 
Is that what you do when you're here on Sunday mornings? Or do you simply go to church, like you go to a game or go to the store? And even in those contexts of life, normal stuff we do on a regular basis, at the game you're engaged, aren't you? You're paying attention to the action on the field, on the court. You're talking to the friend who uh, has come to the game with you. You're, you're cheering. And even at the store, aren't, aren't you active? You're comparing. You're putting things in your car. You're weighing. You're paying and bagging. It's not a passive kind of thing. But if you gather for worship with God's people and your tongue stays still, have you extolled the glory of the King? By the way, you sounded good this morning. Fuller second service helps that. Now look, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's never okay for you to be quiet. There are moments in musical worship when I am overwhelmed by what truth we are affirming, and I have to pause. There are moments where I'm choked up, and um, worship is engaging the heart and the mind and the body means in those moments listening to you sing these truths and marveling as we lift that to the heavens. I'm not saying you always have to be moving your lips and your tongue and you can't ever be silent, but those quiet moments are more exception than the rule. Quiet worship isn't merely following the words on the screen or appreciating the musical gifts of our musicians and our vocalists. That's called a concert, and there's a good place and a time for that. But worship is a verb, to borrow the title of a book. In fact, the message of this psalm is that worship naturally calls for a response. And so if you're a follower of Christ but you don't participate in musical worship, something's very wrong. You're a heart that's not beating in rhythm. You're a a set of feet that aren't walking as you should. You're, You're a child of the king, a sinner rescued by God's mercy and grace who doesn't feel any need to return appreciation and love to the one who has loved you perfectly and has rescued you at the cost of his own son. Or, this has to be on the table, you're not yet united to Christ by faith. You're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's perfectly okay for you to be here. We, we love you being here, listening in, considering the truths of Scripture, interacting with us, in your wrestling, in your doubts, in your skepticism. You go to church, but you haven't yet been transformed into new spiritual life through faith in the Savior, Jesus. Second question we'll ask this morning is, how do we all worship? How do we worship? After the call to worship in verses 1 to 2, the psalmist gives us reasons for worshiping, verses 3 to 4. Uh, three, three through five. First, for the Lord is the great king, the great God, the great king above all gods. He's almighty. He's sovereign. There's no one greater. And then in verses four to five, he's the creator. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Verse six repeats the invitation to praise. Come, let us bow down and worship. And then 
Verse 7 offers another answer to the question, why? Why do we worship? But this time it's more personal. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. He is the personal shepherd attending to the needs of his people. He pays attention. He cares. He's involved. Some of you here this morning would say, I see this, but these reasons aren't enough to convince me to worship. In fact, I don't feel any compulsion to worship. There's, there's no gap in my life that drives me to worship. I don't recognize God's kingship over the world, let alone over my own life. But the reality that I want you to consider this morning is that we all worship someone or something. The question isn't how spiritual you are, how religious you are. The question is, what in your life has greatest worth? To what do you describe ultimate value, deepest satisfaction? Can you imagine looking at a stadium filled with 81,000 World Cup fans? I'm sorry if that's a tease. We're in the second half right now. But if you were home, you're here. If you were home watching on TV, can you imagine seeing that stadium in Russia filled with 81,000 World Cup fans sitting quietly and politely in each of their seats? You'd say, something is wrong here. Soccer fans have transformed into chess fans. There's something wrong here. Why? Because you would expect to see folks decked out in national jerseys, faces painted with the colors of their flag, uh, arms interlocked, jumping up and down, chanting their national victory songs, their national anthem, anything to demonstrate that unity. That's what you would expect. And in watching that kind of scene, you would be right if you had this thought. They are worshiping. They're worshiping. They're doing so not out of duty, but out of sheer delight. And that worship clearly is not limited to a religious context. Think of the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Number one, I know that's a leap from World Cup to catechism. But the the first question says, what is the chief end of man? What is his or her highest purpose? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If that at all sounds like an odd picture of worship, or if it sounds distasteful, I wouldn't want to do that. I I wouldn't want to condescend. I I can't imagine myself glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. I, I want you to apply that idea to these World Cup fans we're imagining. What are they doing? They're glorifying their team. And that act and that attitude fuels their enjoyment of their team. The two ideas can't be separated. Glorify certain things, religious, enjoy other things, material, physical, sensual. No, uh, we do it all the time. And to direct it Godward is behind all of Scripture. When I say those two ideas can't be separated, I could put it in different language. These fans have an integrity to their worship. I don't mean by integrity telling the truth, being honest. I mean like an integer, a whole, right? They're unified. 
body, mind, soul, tongues, all working in concert to express greatest desire that their team would win. There's an integrity to the worship. No one who attended a live match in Russia on Monday morning would merely say to their coworker who said, what did you do yesterday? I went to a game. They would never say such a thing like, I went to church. No, what, what you would hear is a person who couldn't help overflowing with the language of glory and worship. It was amazing. It was, the, it, it was the most powerful experience of my life. I, I lost my voice. I can hardly talk. I'm exhausted. They probably wouldn't go to work on Monday morning anyway. And if you listen to your average, rabid World Cup fan, you'd think that they had just had a profound spiritual experience because they were worshiping, glorifying their team and enjoying it. In a commencement speech back in 2004, American author David Foster Wallace, no longer with us, took his own life years ago, not a very religious man, child of atheists, he spoke pretty bluntly to the graduates, and toward the end he said this, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. A man who's not very spiritual, who is not a follower of Christ, speaks truth, except for the fact that they're not sinful, because they are. They rob God of glory when you seek these false gods, these idols, these substitutes in life. Biblical worship doesn't call you to start worshiping. No, biblical worship assumes that you are already worshiping. But it demands, on the basis of the all-surpassing glory of God, the one who alone in the universe has greatest worth, biblical worship demands that you first recognize where your heart is improperly oriented, the sun around which your life is revolving, orbiting. And then biblical worship demands, on the basis of the all-surpassing glory of God, that you transfer allegiance, you transfer ultimate valuation from whatever it is, false gods, to the one who alone deserves that kind of value because he is supreme treasure. When false worship turns into true worship, that changes your life. That changes everything. Lastly, the warning of worship. This is a great psalm. I can imagine singing with my fellow Israelites until the end of verse 7. And then the psalmist, the poet, ruins everything. 
under the inspiration of the Spirit. So who are we to complain? But here's the abrupt shift, right? There's this invitation to praise. Come in verses 1 and 2, again in verse 6. Why? Because he's the king, because he's the creator, because he's our God. Intimacy and transcendence, all in one, all these reasons. And then he says, today, if only you would hear his voice. And everything changes. If verses 1 through 7 are inviting God's people to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, then verses 8 through 11 are telling us to listen which requires a quiet heart. Starting in verse 8, it's God speaking now instead of the psalmist. And what he says to start is sobering. Do not harden your hearts like your ancestors did on that fateful day. And the rest of the psalm becomes an ugly reminder of what happened back in Exodus. What happened in Exodus? In the beginning, the people of Israel are enslaved to the, the powerful nation of Egypt. They stay in slavery for over 400 years. God provides Moses as the deliverer, 10 plagues. They're out. And he formally delivers them from the pursuing Egyptian army in Exodus chapter 14 when God miraculously parts the Red Sea just for his people and closes it back up. They're out, they're free, but they're now in the desert. In Exodus 15, God has Moses miraculously change bitter water into fresh after the people grumble. In chapter 16, the Lord drops manna and quail from heaven to feed his people after they grumble. And then in verse 17, once again, they come, in chapter 17 rather, they come to a place where there's no water. 600,000 men plus women and children and animals. And they quarrel with and grumble against Moses. You would think there'd be a shred of short-term memory at work in some of them. Gee, maybe what God just did miraculously, time after time after time, maybe he'll do it again. But no. What do they say? If only we were back in Egypt. Idealizing a life of slavery under harsh taskmasters. They accuse Moses of dragging them out into the desert to die. But still, God, in his mercy and compassion, demonstrates his heart for his people, and he provides. Water gushes from a rock, and Moses calls the place Massah and Meribah, which mean testing and quarreling in Hebrew. <laughs> this is tough love, people. Imagine you're a young family and you're taking a road trip this summer and you get back home. And unfortunately, the, the most vivid memory of the road trip is this epic temper tantrum that your kids throw at a rest area in Virginia. And next summer, before you start making plans, you're saying, so kids, do you want to go back to whining like babies, Virginia? That's like Massa. Do you want to go back to acting like little children, Florida? Is that where you want to go? I mean, this is tough love. Like, this goes down in history as these places renamed for all of Israel to remember. Oh, yeah. I remember testing God. I remember quarreling with God himself. Yeah, I, I, uh, let's go back there. It's, it's tough love. And as if that weren't enough, two entire chapters of the New Testament bring it up again. 
interacting with Psalm 95, which is pointing back to Exodus 17. Here's the main point from Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 as it leans on Psalm 95. Freshly to New Testament people, you are worshiping. You're engaging in religious things, but are you listening to God and persisting in faith? It's the same kind of question. Three times in Hebrews 3 and 4, Psalm 95 verse 7 is quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You need to hear it again? He writes it two more times. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament does not let us tisk at these ancient Israelites and shake our heads at their unfaithfulness and their rebellion and their complaining and grumbling and say, what were they thinking? Hebrews says, watch out that it doesn't happen to you. This ugly history in our people's past is a warning for you today. Don't lose out on entering God's rest. It's the language of Hebrews 3 and 4. Even the next generation, after they wandered in the wilderness, the, older, the adults sinned in unbelief, and God judged them by causing them to wander long enough for all the adults to die out, and the children got to inherit the land, the promised land of Canaan. But even after they in, inherited the land under the leadership of Joshua, the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says, there was still a Sabbath yet to come, a rest yet to come. Why? Because true rest was always intended to be not a, a land, not a place, but salvation, body and soul. Ultimate rest is still to come. Hebrews 3.19, not up here for you, just listen. It points backward to the Israelites and says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Because when you massah God, when you test him, you don't take him at his word. You disbelieve him. You don't trust his heart, that he has your best in mind, that his will is perfect, that he takes into account your greatest desires and longings and dreams, which he built you with. You don't believe him, that he has power and compassion to provide all that you need. Today, like ancient Israel, we're in the wilderness. A worship leader, Paola, honestly shared with us, she showed up this morning tasked with a job up here on stage and didn't feel like doing it. But God is faithful. You have your own wilderness. I, I know some of your wildernesses from sharing with you, you, you sharing with me and, and from praying with you and, and caring for you as a shepherd. We're in the wilderness. And every last one of us is a worshiper out in the wilderness. If you, if you identify with God's people, if you identify as a follower of Christ, a Christian, do you have integrity in your worship? Like the soccer fan not about telling the truth, not about being honest, but our, our body, mind, and soul all oriented together towards God. Does your strongest desire match what you say and do? Is there an integrity to how you carry yourself as a worshiper? 
don't harden your heart, God would say, Psalm 95, verse 8. First thing he says in the psalm, don't harden your heart. Don't let it grow dull or apathetic to the things of God, which is a road towards unbelief. Secondly, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you would say, yeah, no, I'm not a Christian, I'm here, maybe reluctantly, maybe with interest, can you see that what's ultimate in your life is your God? It doesn't have to be a religious thing. It is your God, and that false God is powerless to satisfy your greatest desires. In the wilderness of life, it's a dangerous and losing game to trust your own wisdom and strength to get you home where you long to be. There is no rest in the constant striving and the constant insecurity of wondering whether you've done enough and whether what you've done is good enough. There's no rest. If you sing Psalm 95, it is a song in the Bible. Isn't verse 11 a bummer of a way to end a song? There's no resolution. It leaves you hanging with a bad taste in your mouth. But Hebrews in the New Testament helps us realize why. Verse 11, just like the end of Jonah. Some of you were on the retreat up at Camp of the Woods. Verse 11 presses you to decide whether to repeat failure, are you going to learn from history or not, or whether to embrace freedom and rest. Worship is not just an idea. It is an orientation of the heart that leads to action. And biblical worship of the king means submitting your will to him through absolute trust in his promises, especially that through faith in what Christ has done, rest is given to you. Rest from the shame and guilt that your sin deserve, but that have been nailed to the cross through the body of God the Son. It has been paid. You could never justify your own existence. You could never validate your own identity through enough accomplishment. But the Son lived a perfect life in your place, in your stead. The gospel ends the tiring work of self validation, of building self worth, because in Christ, if you believe in Him, the Father loves you perfectly. In Christ, all things are yours. Jesus himself said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Only a perfect being whose work, life, death were perfect and complete could offer you the rest that he himself has earned. Hear his voice. Come to him. Embrace rest now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, said Augustine. And how true it still is today, maybe more so. Our restlessness, our dissatisfaction, our insecurity, our clawing for status and power and money and pleasure, more has never and will never satisfy. Only you can. Lord Jesus, show us the work that you accomplished. Cause us to trust in it that we might taste the rest that you earned. We pray this in your name. Amen.